Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown, I'm Rima Rattan. Today I'm talking to visual artist Jonas Stahl, whose work deals with the relationship between art, propaganda and democracy. He founded the artistic and political organization New World Summit in 2012 and the campaign New Unions in 2016. Jonas is also a propaganda researcher and is currently in Australia talking about his book Propaganda Art in the 21st Century and he kindly dropped in by 3CR Studios a few days ago for our chat. Why propaganda? Why propaganda? As in, what, what is my interest in propaganda? Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it seems like an unusual topic for an artist to, to tackle. Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, there, there are several thinkers in the field of propaganda art who, who have claimed that all art is propaganda. So in that sense, I guess propaganda should concern all artists. What is the conceptual understanding of propaganda in this sense? I mean, in my in my research, I define propaganda as a form of reality construction, meaning that propaganda is not just interested in uh, or used to send the message. It is really about creating a fully immersive environment in which we can start changing the dominant values and narratives in a society to change from one conception of reality to another one that is in the interests of the propagandists or the elites that employ propaganda uh, in their uh, in their direct benefits. So this is about creating a counter-narrative to what is done by elites, as you say. It's not even about creating a counter-narrative, it's about replacing uh, narratives. So what we have seen in the last... 15 years, particularly 15, 20 years, particularly in the European context, for example, is the one that I'm, of course, most familiar with, is a really steady shift uh, of uh, core vocabularies towards extreme right, ultranationalist, alt-right discourses. And that didn't happen from one day to another. It was a continuous work for them to start changing terms, to start changing what is acceptable to, to, to say, what are the boundaries of... Uh, public discourse to over time, particularly using culture to open up the way for them to claim political power. Can you uh, give an illustrative example of how this was done by the right? In my book, I quite extensively discuss the work of uh, Steve Bannon, for example, who of course is most famous as the ideologue of Trump, campaigner of Trump, uh, founder of uh, of the alt-right Breitbart um, media platform. Uh, but lesser known is that Bannon over the last period of the last 15, 20 years was also a very prolific filmmaker and that he used his films to develop the narratives that we have come to know today as Trumpism. 
First, he spinned them around figures like Ronald Reagan, later Sarah Palin, one of the key leaders in the so-called Tea Party, the movement that emerged in protest uh, against the Obama administration. And that kind of started to unify for the first time libertarians and uh, so-called paleoconservatives, the right-wing uh, segment of the Republican Party, as well as white supremacists. And that later on then trans translated into into Trumpism. Bannon was part of all of these movements, and all along the way he was trying to compose through his films, trying to tell a story of what he calls white Christian economic nationalism. Uh, and in that sense, he considered Trump as an imperfect vehicle, just one out of many who over a period of 15 to 20 years could become imperfect vessels for his uh, political message, for his cultural narrative. So this is maybe a good and direct case study of what is the work of a propaganda to over time try to, try to change the culture, try to change the conversation, try to insert new values or different values within an existing framework and manufacture consent, as propaganda researchers Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman used to say, to change what is what we consider as normative reality. And in that sense, Trumpism is very much a Bannonism. Is Bannon's journey just a personal one where he makes these films to clarify his own thought and nobody watches them and they, they just become artifacts? Or do they have impact and influence and how can we tell that they do? I mean, it depends. Of course, Bannon's films, that take the form of a kind of documentary pamphlets. They seem to use the language of a kind of neutral voiceover type documentary style. And, but actually they are, of course, hyper-ideological and they, they use the kind of like extreme right pundits that, that circulate in the, in the darker sub-segments of, um, of, at the time, the Tea Party movement and, and now Trumpism. Although in the case of Trumpism, they're not the dark sub-segment, they're actually like the, the leading voices in the, in the process. And, and so, of course, yes, his, his films catered in, in, in some way an already converted crowd at some moments, but there have been some of his films, like The Undefeated, the film from 2011, he made around, around Sarah Palin and the, and the Tea Party, which actually had quite broad appeal and were uh, circulated in cinemas, in cinemas as well. But it's indeed true that I think looking at his films is important to see an ideological development, to see the films almost as a kind of uh, sketch pads where he's starting to assemble a particular set of ideas and symbols and metaphors. He calls it kinetic cinema, a cinema that is meant to overwhelm an audience and that overwhelming pace that characterizes his, his films is also in a way what's characterized the campaign that he built around um, the Trumpist idea that a kind of barrage, a tsunami of scandals following up one on another, claims, contradictory claims at such a pace that there's no fact checker in the world that is able to demythologize them on time. The turning of kinetic cinema into a kinetic campaign proved how effective a cultural exercise can be in the moment that you translate it into the political realm. Is there an equivalent to Bannon on the left? This is, I think, always a difficult question because, of course, when we see the strength of organizers and propagandists in the field of the alt-right, immediately the first desire one has is, why don't do we not have a Bannon on the left? Why are we not capable of organizing as quick and direct and, and fight the culture wars with the, with the same uh, vigor as they do? But of course here there's also a, a great danger because using Bannon's strategy and just replacing them with progressive or emancipatory political ideas doesn't really work because his very strategy and his use of 
mass manipulation and and conspiracy, his dependency on extremely obscure uh, funding resources such as that of the Mercer family, ultra-conservative uh, multi-billionaire uh, family slash foundation uh, that has dominated political life in the U.S. for a long time now. I mean, these are not the kind of sources and strategies that we should even consider using because if you believe in emancipatory politics, you believe in the leader full movement, you believe in uh, transparency and collectivity, you, you oppose the quick and easy use of us versus them narratives that always impacts the disenfranchised most, you have to use fundamentally different strategies because the kind of power that we represent or the idea of power as we want to claim it as a redistributed power, not as a centralized power, stands fundamentally opposed to, to everything he stands for. So simply using tra strategies of the old right and inf infusing them with leftist ideas in the end still means we are perpetuating ideas of power and hierarchy and oppression uh, that are ingrained in these very strategies themselves. It seems um, sort of despair-making because there's a lot of evidence that the us and them narrative, I mean, everyone has an other, is so powerful and it's so fundamental to who we are, mm. although that also could be something I've learned from propaganda, mm. that that's become a part of accepted reality and it may not be mm. what is the counter to us and them yeah that's a really that's that's of course that's an excellent that's an excellent question i mean it's as difficult as the question of of cooperative gaming like we most of us grow up in a kind of with a kind of the monopoly game type logic which does not only uh, already at a very early age start to start to propagate uh, for uh, ideas of property property ownership uh, extraction, uh, benefiting from the disenfranchised because you can control their through uh, rent control and and you name it. It's of course a, is a terrifying, terrifying set of values that is already being ingrained and embodied at a very early age with this type of, of games and and logics. But it's it's the very logic of win and lose that. The only joy you can have in a game is that I win, one person win, or one person wins, or one team wins, and the other must lose in order for you to feel gratified. There's the field, the field of cooperative gaming, for example, of um, game developers that try to think of games that go beyond the win-lose scenario, in which somehow everyone wins, or the point is not even to win, but the point is, to, is about the joy of collaborative work, the joy of interdependent work, the joy of shared freedoms instead of individuated freedoms. But it's very complex because we're, we're used to, f to think of, of excitement or of progress through win and lose scenarios in which one has to be inherently precarized for the other to feel satisfied. But to come back to, to your question of, of us versus them scenarios, of course, in emancipatory propaganda, there are also us versus them scenarios. Only the us is the largest possible us that tries to identify a truly powerful them. In us versus them scenarios of the old right or the war on terror, the target of these narratives is always an already precarious community or component. So the old right will target Muslim minorities, for example. And apart from the fact that they are not an actual, that they do not actually represent an enemy, it's also an easy narrative because you can actually deport, isolate, brutalize or Visually kill them. Visually identify as well. There seems to be an ease, right? You look different, so you are different. You might have been born and lived in a place for generations, exactly. but there is a visual, you are a um, visible minority. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and it's about the fact that this scenario is an almost guaranteed win because you're choosing an opponent 
that is not actually powerful. Whereas when we say in the Occupy movement, for example, we are the 99%, what we identified of identify as the 1% or the 1% of 1% are the people who are actually in power. We fight a them which is actually responsible for the mass precarization of, of working class uh, communities, who is actually responsible for the climate catastrophe that, that, uh, that we are facing. We identify the smallest possible elite who is responsible for the misery of the largest possible collectivity. And this, I think, is a fundamental difference. And, and of course, it makes our propaganda narratives, let's say an emancipatory propaganda narratives, always more difficult because we have an actual fight to fight. How are we going to guarantee the end of, of uh, the use of tax havens and uh, transnational money laundering? How are we going to put the bankers in jail that caused the, the most devastating misery and precarization from the 2008 uh, crisis uh, onwards? How are we going to prosecute climate criminals who are effectively responsible for the ecocide of the unborn uh, humans, plants and animals yet to, yet to come? The challenges, the, the enemies we face are actual enemies. So resisting us versus them narrative is resisting a particular use of it that creates an illusionary enemies out of people who are already facing the most structural violence and racism and precarization on a day-to-day level and to begin to identify our real-time existential enemies and opponents. But they are so overwhelmingly powerful. Where do you start? Where do you start in your art practice? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good. That's that's also a very good question. I think we part of it is also about imagining that we will win, and another part is about imagining the world that we want to win. I think that this is a really important role of, of art and culture to mobilize a common imaginary that agitates and drives us to desire change in the first place. Because if we don't know what world we want to fight for, it's very difficult than to put up a real fight. So I think art is, art is also about creating this horizon of, of possibility and that makes us want to act different and maybe helps us to escape out of particular dichotomies that the status quo wants to trap us in. So if we think, for example, of the leave-remain dichotomy in the Brexit referendum, we were continuously told there are two futures of the European Union. One that is the leave campaign, so that this is a, a fallback towards imagined sovereign nation-states that never existed in the first place, and even if they would exist, we shouldn't want to return to them. And the other one is a kind of transnational austerity, bureaucratic austerity, elite uh, that destroys the livelihood of one nation, member state, like Greece, to uh, ensure the benefits and the, and the privileges of another. And neither of these choices are right choices. And actually, they maintain each other in power. The ultranationalists say, look at the bureaucratic elites, they're plundering our sovereignty. And the bureaucratic elites say, you have to support us, because otherwise we will fall back towards their nationalism. And our task as artists, I think, is then to insist, no, this, this dichotomy, this very choice is wrong. Our future is to campaign against this referendum and to insist that there are real possibilities, real alternatives, a feminist union, a transnational union, a stateless union, a communalist union, to trigger the imagination to want more than what the status quo is offering us. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. You're with Communication Mixdown, and this week I'm talking to artist and activist Jonas Dahl about the ideas in his book Propaganda Art in the 21st Century. I know some of your work is creating alternative parliaments. Is that where you're coming into this field, I suppose, 
in your practice? As an artist, I develop alternative parliaments. If I look at the parliament, I see various artistic components. I mean, a parliament is an architectural construction. It is a, it has a theatrical theatrical function. It's a place where we perform power and we perform uh, imaginaries of uh, of governance. There are uh, visual symbols that relate to the field of design and and visual arts. Maybe as artists we are not in power, but we have the power to give form to power. If you put all of these politicians in a bunch of like plastic chairs in the in the square, suddenly the whole aura of their legitimacy falls apart. They need those visual components to be recognized as as legitimate actors. And then, of course, if that's a relative power that we have as artists, we can also choose to give power differently or to visualize other forms of, of politics, create parliaments for other stakeholders than the ones that are currently driving us towards a futureless world of mass precarization and downright fascism. So this has been part of my work in a project called New World Summit, the creation of parliaments for stateless and blacklisted organizations, groups that were systematically excluded from democratic representation, particularly in the war on terror. And they take the form of temporary parliaments, uh, architectural constructions of assemblies in theaters and public spaces where me and my team invite groups that um, currently are denied political representation and of which we are always told that they belong to that category of them. They, the blacklisted, they, the terrorists, are what represents a fundamental threat to liberal uh, capitalist democracy. But for us, as the ones who try to create these alternative parliaments of assembly, an important question has been, well, maybe actually we as politicized citizens that have opposed the war on terror and its criminal practices, maybe we share more in common with the groups that are supposedly our enemies than with the elites that drag us into wars that have caused the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. So it's, it is also about creating new alternative parliaments. It's also about recomposing who is us in the us versus them divide. Can you give me an example of one of the projects you've done? The most recent chapter of the New World Summit has been a parliament that uh, that me and my team were commissioned to make for the autonomous Kurdish government in northern Syria, known as a region known as Rojava, which means west in Kurdish and refers to the western part of Kurdistan. And this uh, region in the midst of the Syrian civil war uh, declared independence, uh, fought uh, the Islamic State, fought the Assad regime, is currently being threatened by the Turkish regime. But in the meantime, despite all of this ongoing conflicts and attacks on their on their region, has been able to develop an alternative uh, democratic model they refer to as stateless democracy, which is based on local communal self-governance and communal forms of economy, an ideal of political self-representation from the base, from the, from the grassroots that represents a, a fundamentally different paradigm of power and essentially rejects the idea of the state. They believe that uh, the democratic promise will only manifest if it is liberated from the construct of the state. That's why they call it a stateless uh, democracy. And um, in the past years... I work together with these with these communities to to create an, a public parliament, a parliament as a public space that would uh, somehow function both as a as a monument to represent the values for which uh, the Rojava Autonomous Region has fought and the sacrifices, the enormous sacrifices that were made to achieve this uh, relative form of independence. And at the same time, that apart from being this almost sculptural circular space, parliament would also actually function as a space of 
of day-to-day political uh, political assembly. It was a project that took a long time to to develop, of course, because of the continuous pressures of the of the civil war. Uh, so we worked from 2015 to 2018 on the on the public parliament, but in uh, in 18 it was uh, officially um, uh, inaugurated and and taken into into use. So this this for me is an example also of how as artists we can choose or we can partially choose within what kind of regimes of power we want to operate. We can't escape power. Art is always connected to power one fa- one way or another. Even if you are a landscape painter in a gallery, you accept that your work is reduced to a commodity on which there can be speculation, on which notions of ownership are perpetuated. I mean, even in the, uh, in that sense, there's no escape from um, dominant ideologies. But we can be very conscious about what kind of ideologies, what new forms of power do we want to help imagine into the world, that we want to support worlding the world in a different way. And I think the Kurdish revolutionary movement and their work, their struggle in, in the context of northern Syria is an exceptional example of uh, the possibility to world the world differently. Well, the world is a, is a beautiful phrase. You're talking about a, a reimagining of the world, a different world. It's, yeah, it's about reimagining the world, but it's reimagining a different world. It's also about practicing the possibility of a different world. And, and maybe this is also partially a, uh, an important role of art, that, that art is a space where we can uh, in some way pre-enact or rehearse, rehearse that different world. And in the process of rehearsal, we start to embody uh, different uh, values and ideas and horizons, and that helps to mobilize and agitate us to actually realize them materially as well, from the imagination to political reality. You're proposing a reverse propaganda model. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah. So Chomsky and Hermann's propaganda model was developed in the 80s, and of course in the period of the of the Cold War, they identified these kind of five core filters. Uh, such as ownership, such as source control, the use of flak, which today we would call fake news, so the conscious insertion of misinformation to derail dominant narratives, and anti-communism at the time, which today would be anti-Islamism, that actually ref- that references the fundamental us versus them dichotomies um, that are, are used to create a, a, uh, an illusionary common enemy and forge the idea of nationhood, to forge the idea of of community necessary to sacrifice in the in the worlds to come. So they really developed a, a propaganda model, a very a, extremely important propaganda model that still is used in propaganda studies a lot, and that helps us to analyze how power performs itself through culture, through the military-industrial complex, through the mass media, in trying to forge, construct a new normative reality, a new immersive consent. But the difficulty, or let's say my critique or attempt to expand on this model, is that they presume that the only people who can make propaganda are those who are already in power. Whereas I believe that if we look at the role of uh, social movements, of popular mass movements across across the world from, from the past decades, from... From uh, from the Occupy movement to Black Lives Matter, that that we see these bodies that assemble on the squares, these bodies that assemble uh, as a result of extreme for, extreme form of forms of precarization and violence, gather and start to build new common imaginaries, new infrastructures, alternative uh, media stations like your own, alternative infrastructures of life support, of of healthcare, of solidarity. They represent power as well. They represent the fundamental counterpower. They also perform power. And that means that there also must be 
wherever there is power, there is propaganda. There must be a propaganda narrative there as well, but one that really fundamentally opposes the elite interests represented by dominant forms of propaganda. So for me, in writing uh, writing my book on contemporary propaganda art, it was really important to also emphasize that there is power in counter-movements. There is different conceptions, different propagations of the world, different worldings of the world that manifest there. There's There are new cultures, new arts that can aspire us in, to, to new worlds, to creating new worlds. And these should not be ignored by only focusing on what the dominant elites of this world want us to think. We should do more than just deconstruct dominant political orders. We have to establish different orders. And the filters, counter-filters, or updated filters, I suppose you're proposing are democratization, grassroots mobilization, public knowledge, transparency and collectivity. Does this stem from your work or... Is this a purely intellectual exercise that you've done? No, it stems from uh, being involved with and analyzing and interviewing key organizers and artists that are active within social movements, within popular mass movements, and trying to understand how different than the filters of Chomsky and Hermann that are about manufacturing consents from a kind of elite top-down perspective, how in popular mass movements from a grassroots collective sense of urgency, new narratives, new imaginations, new worldings are proposed. So I don't really assume or I try not to assume in my work or as an artist to dictate forms of politics to people. I am a part of or actively involved with popular mass movements and my work is inspired by the co- by this collective work and tries to contribute to this collective work. I think this um, more maybe traditional avant-garde idea of artists who prescribe to us how the world is, should uh, look like is uh, is very dangerous and actually replicates authoritarian tendencies that we need to that we need to uh, that we need to reject. It's not for nothing that there is offer in authoritarian uh, so I think we, we should think of ourselves as artists in, involved in or engaged in egalitarian politics. We we should think of ourselves more as part of or extension of or solidary with or contributing to the larger collective authorship that's, that we witness in the popular mass movement. This could be, a, again, another disparate question, but the alt-right seems, you know, it's, it's built quite a strong presence in politics. What is something that a people's movement could learn from what they've done? Yes, this is, of course, a difficult question because, in a way, I think there's nothing to learn from the alt-right. What we need to do is defeat the alt-right. There's nothing to copy, there's nothing to replicate because both their narratives and their form of organization fundamentally opposes uh, emancipatory values. I think if there would be one exception, I think it might have to do with the role of ambiguity and contradiction that the 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 right is very good in using contradiction to their benefit uh, whereas in the case of the left we always assume that uh, legitimacy comes from the way that we act in the world and what we say and what we do has to be exactly the same thing uh, and that as soon as there is a discrepancy a Green Party politician used a, used a, took an airplane to go to a conference somewhere because there was not no time to take the train or whatever. Then these people are immediately scrutinized on the most stupid, on the most stupid conditions. Or an activist is asked, "Yes, but your iPhone, your leather shoes, your like on the most like micro micro political level, we are kind of tasked to carry the the entire all the struggles of the world in at once." 
Whereas we wouldn't even ask these questions to right-wing politicians because we assume that they are in living in perpetual contradiction. They don't have any values to live up to in the first place. So, so in a way, contradiction is the only value that they have. The difficulty is, of course, that as humans, we are contradictory, we are ambiguous, we are we are hybrids, and that, that this hybridity is also a mobilizing component. I think the fact that people always assume that, or that it's strange that people vote for Trump because he's so contradictory, but pe- maybe people vote for Trump because he is contradictory, because people are contradictory. And I think as from a position of emancipatory politics, in some sense, we might need to find more uh, joy and passion in our contradictions, in our ambiguities, as a driving force, as an inspiring force, as, a, as, a, as an inherent part of the complicated process of trying to construct new realities out of the terrifying oppressive ones that we're currently living in and in some ways are often also um, dependent of. So, th- I mean, this is not necessarily something to, to learn from, but maybe it's like it's an, more of an an observation that that possibly might be valuable in in trying to avoid this this perpetual self flagellation and factionalism that uh, that unfortunately is a returning aspect in in emancipatory politics. Yeah, there's this uh, expectation of purity or superhumanness that fundamentally seems to kind of lack compassion about what it means to live in the world right now, in a way, which is kind of sad. Jonas, where can people buy your book? The book came out from, uh, is published by the, the MIT Press, and that can be bought from the MIT Press, or even better, uh, from your local bookstore to order it and to avoid the terror of uh, the Amazons of this world that we don't want to, to own or, or get a dime from us. What you just said about the lack of understanding the importance of contradiction and ambiguity might also indeed have to do something with a, a lack of compassion. And I think emancipatory politics... Our, our dictum should be to follow a form of hyper-empathy, as Octavia Butler used the, the term in, in some of her, of, her, of her books. And it is from this hyper-empathy that we will build the radically pluralistic, hybrid and egalitarian coalition that we will need to, to win. That was Jonas Stahl talking to me about his work as an artist and a propaganda researcher. That's it for Communication Mixdown this week. We're back again next Monday at 6 p.m. Today's song, chosen by Jonas, is by artists he met while doing the work in Rojava that he mentioned in our interview. Apologies in advance if I've got the pronunciation wrong. This is Koma Botan and Estana Genim with M. Bernarden V. Delani. Ola şer gurme gurme de bilabetin ve meydanı de bilabetin veri bende bu vende ger yadımadım emberin adını ve dilanı emberin adını ve gövende Let's get it.
Thank you.